Welcome to the Holy City Church Podcast Station. This is Pastor Angel. If you missed Sunday's sermon or want to listen to it again, you're in the right place. We're glad that you can take the time to catch up as we go through God's Word together. So I hope you're ready. But if you're not, grab your Bible. Let's get ready for what God has in store for us today. Matthews chapter 5, we're going to look at verses 1, we're going to read 1 through 12, but we're only going to really focus on uh, the first six verses, but we're going to read verses 1 through 12, and when you do find it, go ahead and, and uh, join me by standing, and, uh, and we'll go ahead and read that. says seeing the crowds he went up the mountain and when he sat down his disciples came to him and he opened his mouth and taught them saying blessed are the poor in spirit for there is for theirs is the kingdom of heaven blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted blessed are the meek for they shall inherit the earth blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness for they shall be satisfied Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for the rewards is great in heaven. For they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Father in heaven, Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for this word that you've given us. Thank you for preserving everything in your word for us to be able to read and know and understand uh, many years after, Lord. Father, we just, we just ask that you continue to teach us, you continue to mold us, Father, that your word is what changes who we are, that it not be words of humans or men, Father, there be your words directly, Father, because we want that permanent change, Lord, because it's coming just from you, Lord. So we just ask that you soften us, soften our hearts, open our minds, Father, and may we able to receive the words that you have for us. In your name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Like many of us, I don't know if, if, if maybe this applies to, to every single one of them, but it sure applies to me. We, we you know, m- many of us grew up pretty broke, I say, right? Uh, kind of living, you know, either paycheck to paycheck or almost not paycheck to paycheck. And uh, my family, I, we migrated from, we migrated to this country about in 1992. We migrated here. Uh, we lived in a communist country where there was pretty much nothing, right? If you wanted just one scoop of ice cream, you had to make a line that would be hours long. And maybe, maybe you get lucky enough that it's your turn after two hours of standing in line that they have ice cream left and you can grab yourself one scoop of ice cream. Right? It was very difficult, and I know some of us can relate to, to living in that kind of uh, you know, atmosphere where, where you didn't have everything you always wanted, and everything was never always available when you wanted. And uh, as we migrated to this country, kind of running away from that sense of not having anything or the ability to do anything, we came here, but when we came here, we didn't all of a sudden become rich, and all of a sudden we have all this everything we ever wanted. We actually continued to be pretty broke. Uh, we lived in a, a really small apartment where everybody was li- you know, sleeping in the same room. You know, my parents, my dad had multiple jobs, two, maybe sometimes three jobs just to kind of you know, get by. And this was many years ago. This was about 20 something years ago where we're living, the cost of living was still pretty decent, not like it is now. You can still get by with a lot. 
but even then, we were still pretty broke. We didn't have anything that we wanted to to have. We we had to struggle for just the little things. So whenever we will hear somebody talk about how we could find a way to get more money or to have a better life, we tend to always kind of just, all right, I want to hear this, right? If there was a way to improve your lifestyle, we wanted to know about it. And then whenever it came to the fact that, hey, God is the one that's going to help you do that, we even listened to more of that, right? We were like, okay, so we're talking about God is going to do this, okay, because we all know God's hands are bigger than our hands, right? Metaphorically speaking, he's not, he doesn't really have hands, but he, he, can, he can give you more than what you can even think of, right? We know that. So whenever we like at church and we were listening to, to these pastors come and talk about how God can improve your life, we were like, yes, we're going to take notes. <laughs> yes, please. I want to hear this. We were very, we, we liked when those preachers would come to the church that would help us because we grew up with this need that we didn't have things available to us, so we wanted to find ways to obtain this. I mean, we love to hear those preachers come to the church and talk about how to have a better life. And I think this is common among us where we are kind of looking to have a better life. We're looking to find ways where we can improve our lifestyle. I mean, we even vote in this kind of same sense of mind, right? We, we just had the election, right? And, and we vote based on who can, uh, when you really look at everything, right? We look at all the policy. We look at what policy can, or, or what person or policy or whatever it is that can help us achieve a better lifestyle, whether it is, you know, growth, financially or or being able to to have more uh, things available to us are we looking for that you know we're looking for more security what what better way to secure our family and ourselves right we were just talking about that right before Connor and I how can we you know sometimes it's scary when we can we we, we think about how we have an up a, a there's a chance that one day we may not be able to fully provide for our kids and for our wives is going to be difficult. So when we make votes, we usually keep those things in mind, right? How can we better be secure? Or maybe even how can we have a little bit more power, make, be able to make better decisions or influence in order to make decisions that we ultimately benefit from, right? We're always looking for that. Uh, that's why it's so easy to fill up a church if you're going to tell them how can they have a better life because everyone is looking to improve their life. I've never spoken to anyone who said, no, I'm looking to worsen my life. I, I got way too good. I got way too many privileges. I need less privileges. I need less things. I've never had a conversation like that with anyone. It's always more, I, I, how can I improve what I already have? You know, everyone wants a little bit of comfort. Or everyone wants to have you know, the things that they want. And, and everyone loves to have a little luxury every now and then, right? We, I don't, we all like vacations. I'm not going to say I don't. No, I, I like going on vacations. I like to be able to do certain things that, you know, we can just do, right? That's fun. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, I'm not going to tell you that wanting a little bit of success or wanting to have well-being, right? Everybody's doing good, it's bad. I'm not going to tell you that. That's not what this is about. But at some point, you have to come to a realization that as a disciple of Christ, we must have a different attitude. You know, we, this not necessarily is wrong to want to be better, right? We go to school, right? We don't just stay home and, and not study, right? We want to become better people. But our attitude is a little different than what we're used to seeing in the world. Now, as a matter of fact, contrary to what the prosperity churches are, are teaching, sorry, Jesus preached a completely different gospel altogether. So we have this idea that, yes, let's go to church because they're going to teach me how I can improve my life. But as you're going to see, Jesus kind of doesn't really take that approach. And he does an amazing job with this sermon that he does on the mount. 
right? We all know this as a Sermon on the Mount because this is one of the best sermons ever. You know, what Jesus spoke on this mountain contradicts a lot of ideas that we as Christians kind of adapt, that we get from the world. We, we, we kind of, you know, after a while, we're blending in so much that we think it's, it's uh, yeah, this is the Christian biblical ideas, but they're not. It even contradicts the dependency that we have on government authorities to improve our way of life. You know, we, we look at government, we say, how? I, and, I, and I joke a lot. I, mean, I don't care who's president. I just need that stimulus package. You know, give me that stimulus package. I don't care. Right? We, we, we look at government to give us, you know, our government, come on. I need a better life. Let's go. Do something for me. And this sermon contradicts that exactly. So the next two weeks, we're going to focus on the beginning of this sermon that Jesus spoke and taught on the mountain. But there's some things that we have to, you know, kind of understand before we begin. The sermon as a whole is Jesus teaching his disciples the way of the kingdom of God. Jesus here wasn't speaking something new, right? Jesus has always spoken about this attitude that we as believers should live by. This is nothing new. He's just basically using different words to teach what he's always taught, which was that the Father cares about the heart, not just your external righteous deeds. We see that Jesus many times over and over again teaches us the importance of it's got to be inside first. If not, anything that's in the outside means nothing. It's got to come from the inside. It's about your spiritual being, your, your inside first. And he does this many times. And this sermon is no different. He's just using a different way of teaching it. Jesus here was describing the person who is saved. He's not giving you a formula to be saved. He's describing people who are saved. Okay, and you're going to see how this plays out. A lot of people want to look at this and be like, okay, Jesus gave me some, you know, he's about, uh, I believe it's about eight, no, 12 blessings. Uh, uh, today is four, yeah, eight. Eight blessings. And we're like, oh, I got this one. And then we went through the whole list. All right, I'm saved. No, this is not what Jesus is doing. Remember, saving comes first, right? We're saved first. So this is who, who are those who are saved. So Jesus wasn't speaking crazy talk, but he was revealing God's kingdom to the real people in real culture. So Jesus is talking to real people, real saved people and, and the, the good thing about this the awesome incredible thing about this sermon is that you take this sermon exactly the way it's written and you put it anywhere in any culture and it fits perfectly just fine there's no changes needed there's nothing to be adapted there's nothing to be modified it works just the way it is because what Jesus is speaking is works for any culture any person no matter where they're at and you're going to see how that plays out as well now, how exactly did Jesus get to that sermon? You know, at this point, Jesus was becoming very well known. I mean, we, we, we went through the book of John, the whole book of John, and we saw the amazing things Jesus did, all those miracles. And we saw how Jesus, with time, was just gathering nothing but attention. You know, with everything he was doing, he was catching good attention and bad attention. People were starting to kind of crowd him. We, one time he was, you know, preaching to more than 4,000 at the same time. Right? He fed all those people. So that's a lot of people. That's a lot of attention. I mean, you would think mega churches can hold one, two thousand people and they have two services and you'd be like, well, that's a lot. No, at one point Jesus had more than four thousand people. And, and to be honest, it's almost you can even double it because they weren't counting women and kids. So let's just say eight thousand people were you know, at one point listening to Jesus at the same time. So he was getting very well known. Jesus Jesus went through all Galilee teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among these people. You can see that if you read the chapter before this, you can see that this is what exactly Jesus was doing. So that's why Jesus was getting very popular. 
So then he started to have crowds follow him everywhere he went looking for him to heal them, right? This is what happens when you're healing people and you're doing miracles and, and you're preaching things that are just like, wow, and you know, people start to gather. And this is what's happening right here. There's a whole bunch of people coming from all over the places following Jesus wherever he was going because either they wanted to listen to him or they just wanted him to heal them. Most of the time it was the healing part, but, you know, there were just people gathering. And in this particular moment, with all the people gathering on, around him, he went up to the mountain and he sat down to start teaching his disciples. Now, we have to understand that when Jesus did this, it was for the purpose of being able to teach properly, right? He didn't just hide from anyone. He, there was many people. He has to move to a location and, and it's and in that uh, in that time, it was known. It was very common for a teacher who's going to teach to, you know, isolate themselves a little bit and sit down somewhere that's a little bit higher than everyone. That way, they can speak to everyone. You know, just the same way we do here. If you're going to teach the church, you come up here, right? If we would sit in a crowd in a circle and I'll sit in the middle of the circle, it's difficult to teach because I can only look at certain places, right? You know, I'm talking to a few people. What about the people behind me, right? So it's the same idea. So Jesus removed himself from the crowd and put himself in a place where he can go ahead and teach those who were there. And these verses that, you know, these verses say that Jesus started to teach his disciples. Well, he started to teach. His disciples came in. He started to teach. So he was teaching his disciples. But towards the end of the sermon, you're going to see how there was just more than his disciples listening. You're going to see how more than just his disciples were amazed by what Jesus had just said. So yes, though we see this, we see this sermon, and this is specifically spoken to the disciples, doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't want others to hear it. It's the same message, whether you're a believer or not. Though he's referring and being specific to teaching his disciples, anyone can listen to this message and understand what God's trying to say. And then as Jesus opened his mouth, he spoke powerful words and he started with what we know has been called for many years the Beatitudes, which is what we're going to look at in the next two weeks. We're going to look at half today, half the next week, uh, God willing, next week. So what is the Beatitudes, right? Beatitudes is... It means the blessings, right? But it also has an understand. Uh, uh, it's also understood as giving the believer his be attitudes. So basically, it's the attitudes that you should be. So if you want to understand this simple, these are your attitudes as a believer, right? All these are characters traits that mark a Christian. <coughs> Excuse me. It is not as we can major in one of these and exclude the other. It's not like we can go ahead and grab one and be like, oh, I'm really good at this one, so I'm good. No, it's not master one and forget the other. It's all of them. These are all attitudes that we should hold. You know, we can't escape from the responsibility to desire every one of these spiritual attributes. That's very important because these are spiritual attributes, okay? So that's that's going to be helpful, right? But when Jesus says, blessed, is Jesus promising blessings to his disciples. He's saying, if you have this attitude, you are blessed. So he's making, uh, he's claiming something. He's not saying you may feel blessed. No, he's saying you are blessed. So now, the idea behind the word blessed in Greek, the word blessed is happy. But it's in the truest godly sense of the word. I mean, this doesn't mean, oh, I found something that makes me happy today. He's not saying, oh, this is what you may do today so you can feel happy. But he refers to an actual permanent Joy. It's like this joy that goes beyond that, you know, temporary happiness that we feel when we, you know, get a chance to watch our favorite show or eat our favorite food. Wow, this, 
I'm so happy today I was not able to do anything and got to watch a movie. He's talking about beyond that. He's talking about permanent joy, permanent blessing. I like how Barclay says, joy which has its secret within itself, that joy which is serene and untouchable, a self-contained, that joy which is completely independent of all chances of changes of life. So this is joy that's outside of anything that can be controlled by us. So that's the joy. That's the blessing that Jesus is talking about. This blessing is a sense of happiness that is not dependent on anything or anyone other than Christ. So it's not dependent on whether government or, or the right person came out. Right? I've seen some... Some Christians get a little bit rowdy now about why, who came out and very impatient and very kind of rude and, and, and mean, almost like, oh, you've been going to church lately? doesn't matter. Your joy is not dependent on who's in charge in government or what it is that you're doing or what is happening around us. That is exactly what this blessing is about. So when you see blessed is the person... Right? When you see all these verses, it's going to start, blesses the person, something, something, something. It's like saying, joyful is the person. So just look at it that way, it's easier to understand. So now Jesus starts off by saying, verse 3, blesses the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When, it, when, when most preachers now, they start with a sermon with something very po positive and very you know, makes you feel very good inside and makes you ready to tackle the world. Jesus takes a completely different approach. He starts his sermon with something completely that doesn't sound like it's very positive. Now, this is a key verse because this is a verse that kind of sets the rest of the Beatitudes. And as a matter of fact, this is a verse that kind of sets the rest of our new life. This is where everything starts with this verse. This is the beginning of and the starting point of understanding the good news part of the whole gospel, right? We understand the whole gospel is not just Jesus died for you. Because I can tell you Jesus died for you, but you're going to tell me why. Why did Jesus die for me? Why is that good news that a man died for me? I didn't do nothing that required him to die for me. So this is the part where it allows you to understand why Jesus died for you. So when Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, he means the person who acknowledges how broken their spirit is. That person who acknowledges that brokenness is joyful. He is blessed. This means that we acknowledge that we are sinful and rebellious and utterly without moral virtues. That you have no spiritual asset. You're literally spiritually bankrupt. That's what Jesus is saying. You're acknowledging that you are spiritually broken. You have nothing to offer spiritually. And you need someone to fix that problem. So you see why this is a key verse. This is where we acknowledge who we really are. And what state our spirit is in. And I mean, don't get me wrong, okay? Jesus is not saying that you're useless, hopeless, you're without a cause, you're completely lost. That's not what he's saying, okay? Sometimes we can get that mixed up, broken in spirit. That means we should feel like we're complete losers. No, that's not what he's talking about. He's simply saying that your spiritual value, your spiritual worth, that hope that you have does not come from you. It is not you who is in you, but Christ is that is in you. So that value you have spiritually does not come from anything that you do and anything that you are or whoever you think you are. That does not come with that. That's why he says that those who are poor in spirit will obtain the kingdom of God. 
Because the moment you can realize how dead you are in your spirit, your spirit is dead, that's the moment where you realize you need someone to change it. And that's the moment you will realize that only Christ can do that. And that's the only moment when you have eternal life. Because other than that, other than realizing you need Christ in your life, you got nothing. You're going to stay dead where you're at. That's why it's a joy that you look at yourself and say, Wow, I am broken. We have this idea that because of who have we become, right, or, or what political party we belong to, or, or what people we hang out with, you know, where we come from, you know, we, we think that that gives us any real value. We may have some kind of value where we might have a little bit more money or whatever physically, but that really doesn't give us any eternal value. So what happens when, when we have this idea is that we go start chasing whatever it is, and in the process, what we do is we gain the world, but then we lose our soul. Because that's what we're chasing. So we must let go of what the world wants us to think and we are having to recognize who we actually are. So then the question is, are you poor in spirit? This is an important question that you have to ask yourself. If you're going to understand everything else that Jesus says, you have to be able to answer this question. So you have to look at yourself and say, okay, am I poor in spirit? If you want to kind of help thinking about it, let me ask you this. Do you find that you are joyful only when you do the right things? You find only joy when you read the Bible today. I prayed. Oh, God, I prayed. I read the Bible. Oh, man, I did everything you I'm supposed to do. Man, what a joyful day this is. I am so joyful. But then when you don't, you're down and depressed. Oh, I didn't read the Bible today. I didn't pray. Now you're just walking around all night depressed uh, in, in, in this depression that, oh, I failed. I'm a complete failure. So if you say, yes, I have that, you know, that happens to me where I find joy in the things that I'm doing. But when I don't do what I'm supposed to do, I get depressed. What you're saying is that you are your own satisfying factor. That means Whatever it is that you're doing, that's what you're finding joy in. So if you're doing good, then you're joyful. But if you're not, then you're not joyful. Because when you're a poor in spirit, you are dependent fully and only in God. And that is what drives your joy. So no matter if you're having a good day where you did everything you're supposed to, or a bad day where you completely failed at everything, doesn't matter because your joy doesn't come from what you did your joy doesn't come from where you are whether you made a lot of money today or not your joy comes from God from Christ from who he is from what he's done to you and what a joy it is to know that what I have and what I what I'm going to get does not come because of who I am but because of crisis. Whatever you have in your life right now, whatever you have in your home, your cars, your house, your roof, your job, whatever you're going to have, whatever you had in the past, whatever you're going to have in the future, whether it's more uh, whatever it is here or eternal life, any of that. It's so joyful to think that I don't have that because of me, because of Christ gave it to me. And he continues. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. Now Jesus goes on to say that those who are poor in spirit will mourn. Now I have to be clear because you're like wait what? Even though it sounds like it. Jesus is not talking about that casual sorrow for someone you love that died. He's not talking about mourning for those who have passed away. Even though. He will comfort you in those moments, right? But this is not this is not that. That's not what Jesus is talking about right here in this moment, okay? 
I'm not saying he's not going to comfort you when a you know, loved one you know, passed away and you're mourning. He will. But that's not exactly what Jesus is talking about in this specific moment. But rather, this morning, because you're going to miss someone, Jesus is actually saying that you mourn over sin because you know that you are broken and you know what is the outcome of sin. So you're mourning because you know what sin is and you know sin is in you. And there are two ways we can experience this type of mourning. First, we may experience the deep conviction in our Holy Spirit, of the Holy Spirit and mourn for your own sin and the way it offends the Holy Creator. Right? You look at yourself and now you go into this mourning because you know how you have sinned against God. You say, I am broken. I have no value. My spirit is valueless because I have sinned against God. And then I mourn that. And then second, we can also mourn in the midst of suffering for the kingdom. I mean, we see everything that's happening around us. We see all this disobedience. We see all this hate. We see all this violence. We see all these divisions. We see all the bad things that are happening around us. People are constantly going astray. You know, just this week, I got a text message. Hey, pastor of Hillsong, New York, got fired because he was cheating on his wife. That is heartbreaking to hear news like that coming from the church. When I see the world falling apart, you know, sinning constantly on purpose against God. That's another way we mourn sin. Just like it's the same pain that just like Jesus felt when he mourned the wickedness of the Israelites it's the same exact thing we must see the brokenness in this world and it should not be a source of entertainment it should be a source of something that's breaking us inside we should, we should feel pain for what's happening out there understand that though we don't lose our everlasting joy doesn't mean that the pain is not real right this is a real pain we don't lose joy over it we're not going to all of a sudden go into depression and, and never have joy anymore but it is real pain I mean and I get it how can we continue to have joy when we see how broken we are and how broken the world is, I mean, it's difficult to put joy and mourning in the same sentence. How do you, how do you even do that? We can do that because of the promise. He says, I will comfort you. You will be comforted. That's why we can find joy in the middle of all that. Joyful is a person that mourns over sin because he will be comforted by God himself. God allows his grief into our lives as a path. When our mourning is, is God-centered mourning, we seek out God. Then as we seek out, we get to enjoy this special fellowship with God himself. I mean, you have thought about it? Have you, have you looked at those instances in the past where all of a sudden everything is just falling and everything is breaking? What do we do? We just seek God the most, right? We're like, God, what's going on? We look at ourselves. We see how broken we are. And we realize we need Christ. What do we do? Christ, God, I need you. Right? We seek God. So when we seek God, then we start having this relationship with God. Because now we're constantly, you know, talking to God, right? That's why God does so many things to us, right? He allows so many bad things to happen because 
is the only time that we stop and we're like, okay, God, what's, you know? So we have this relationship with God, and therefore, now you're experiencing God in a way that you wouldn't have if everything was going perfect. And blessed are those who get to experience that comfort that only He can provide. This is a comfort that you will not find anywhere but with Christ. And he says, verse 5, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Now because of this verse right here, we can see that Jesus is not trying, his intentions is not trying for us to, to walk around you know, depressed and mopey because we're mourning in our sins, right? We're mourning about our sins. He's not. That's that's all you can tell. He's not because, uh, of course, in order does he wants us to feel like we're weak or have any backbone. Then when you look at what it's saying here, right? It's really hard to kind of get a clear definition and a clear uh, understanding of what it means to be meek, because it's not a word that has a translation. Uh, at least not a good one, right? But it's like having a proper balance between anger and indifference. But when you put it in context, what Jesus is talking about, this is a person with a powerful personality, but it's properly controlled, and he's a person who walks in humidity. Humility, sorry, not humidity. That's what's getting my... This rain is causing a lot of humidity. That's for sure. It's like having strength but under control. I mean, just picture a very powerful horse. Right? We all powerful horses. They know they can run around because they're powerful and strong. They can create havoc. They know that. Right? It's a strong horse. It can run around wildly, destroying things. But this is a horse who is trained and under control to do what's needed. He knows he's powerful. He knows he can do things. But he's under control. He's not going to create havoc. He knows what his limits are. He recognizes that he must stay in a place where he can do the right thing. Right? A powerful, great horse, but under control. And yes, we recognize and mourn who we are spiritually. But we know our value is great due to what Christ has done for us. We know our spirit now because God has changed who we are. He has saved us. Now our spirit does have some value because He saved us. I mean, think about it. We are a creation of the Holy God. He gave us intelligence. He gave us minds. He gave us physical strength. We know that we live and do all things because God has given us the ability to do so. Just the fact that we can breathe and we're here. right? He gave us. He allowed us to breathe. And for us who are saved, we know that we have eternity to look forward to. You know, everlasting life with God, with the Holy One. But to be meek means to show humbleness, respect, a willingness to submit and work under the proper authority. Whether the authority is God or men, we're, we're capable of understanding that we must humble ourselves. Yes, we have value, but we submit to His will and conform to His word. Yes, we have strength and we have knowledge, but yet also humble, gentle, patient, and long-suffering. I mean, if we can, we could create chaos. We can all gather here and say, all right, let's go riot. And we can create chaos. But we don't. We don't do that. 
know we can see an old lady on the street and just hit her one time, knock her out, because we're that strong. But we don't do that. We control ourselves. We're gentle. So then how is one that's meek so blessed? I mean, it's hard to show, it's, it's hard not to show off how awesome you are because you're saved, right? My mom used to tell me this all the time when I used to get home. Oh, why does this kid get to have that and I don't? You know, look how cool he is, but I don't have that. I want to be cool too. And she used to tell me all the time, you got something that the kid doesn't have. You're, you have eternal life, don't worry. And you're like, oh, I got eternal life. You got a toy, but I'm going to live forever. Right? It's hard. It's hard not to feel so so proud and powerful. But we find joy in our humbleness because Christ makes us a promise. He says, we will inherit the earth. See, God will not allow his meek ones to end up in the short end of the deal. He's not going to allow the world to overtake us. His promise is that we will indeed possess the promised land. We're talking about the new heavens and the new earth. We think that just because everyone else is moving up, and we're going to see how as time passes, we as believers are going to be more oppressed and more uh, uh, persecuted, and we're going to feel like we're losing, that we should attack. Let's grab all our guns and let's go to war with the world. We're losing no, we're not. He's not going to let that happen. The new creation will not be possessed by the powerful politics, the wealthy class, the ruleless tyrants. It will be possessed by the mix. The new heavens and the new earth is going to be ours. So of course, that's something to be joyful about. Spurgeon says it looks as if they would be pushed out of the world, but they should not be. For they shall inherit the earth. The wolves devour the sheep, yet there are more sheep in the world than there are wolves. And the sheep continually continue to multiply and feed in green pastures. We will continue to multiply. Even in hard times, even under persecution, we've seen that we just grow. And we've had history. We've had histories of thousands upon thousands of those who truly believe in Christ. We will not be overtaken. So we don't need to show off how powerful and awesome we are. We can stay humble and still find joy. Lastly, Matthew uh, uh, 5 or 6 says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. See, what is important here is to identify what Jesus means by hunger and thirst for righteousness. The best way I can explain it is, have you ever gone a day or two without eating or drinking anything? Maybe if you're fasting, you decide, I'm going to fast, fully fast, no food, no water for a day. You know, when you do that, temptation hits was the first thing the temptation hits you with. I got to give me some food, man. I'm hungry. Right? We go a couple of hours, we're like, there better be some sandwiches in the other side. Right, because we want that food, we need that food. We go a day without eating, and the first thing is like, I gotta have food. And you really have to eat. You're willing to do whatever to just get something to eat. Doesn't matter what it is. I'm just starving. It's something that's just tugging on you, and it's just not gonna leave you alone until you actually eat something. Right? We're watching that show alone that Kano and Melissa rec uh, recommended to us. Survivor show. And these people did whatever they can do to find something. And when they couldn't find that rabbit, 
man, that hunger just wouldn't let him go. It was just on them all the time. I am hungry. I need to find a rabbit. I don't care how many traps I got to put. The desire that you get is what Jesus is talking about. It is a passion. So you have this ultimately ultimate desire and ultimate passion for righteousness. Something that just tugs on you all the time. This passion is, is as real as hunger is. It's intense. It's a passion that can sometimes be painful. But it's a passion that is natural. It's healthy. It's not an obsession. But a passion to see the right things. So now what Jesus is saying. That we should have this type of hunger and thirst for righteousness. But we're not simply to seek righteousness. Or to have righteousness as a goal. We are to hunger and thirst. We are to have this passion, this need for righteousness. Which means that we must have a passion to seek the will of God. This means that we must have a passion to leave sin aside and seek mercy. To seek purity and peacemaking. We shouldn't be, oh no... Uh, maybe no we this is passion that we just see the wrong things in our lives and we just want to get rid of it we just we need it gone right the same way that we want food we need this gone that's now i need the food now i need this gone now and even though we won't be perfect we're going to fail but we should have a passion to continually pursue the things of god we should be constantly wanting to continue to pursue when even when we fail we just want to get back up and continue that pursuit of righteousness and it's not just personal passion it's not just for yourself it's not just wanting to see myself seek after sanctification this is also wanting to see the world promote and seek that same righteousness we want to see the right things done to the people that live here. We, we want to we have this passion that, that we want to see government, we want to see leaders, that we want to see people do the right thing for people. Whatever God is, right? We always got to set that standard. What is the right thing, right? If we all sit here, we all have our opinion about what the right thing is. But when we're talking about righteousness, we got a standard. That's God's standard. He knows what's right and what's wrong. He tells us what's right. And we should have a passion to see what God says is right to be, you know, in this world. We know it's hard. We know it's going to be almost impossible. Well, if, you know, as long as, you know, God doesn't change everyone, it's going to be impossible. But we still want to have that passion to see. We don't want to see those people being, uh, being left hunger. We don't want to see people being abused. We don't want to see people being... Uh, persecuted we don't want to see uh you know any any race or anything be put down or, or put on the side or, or anything like that we don't want to see that that's the passion that we should have and jesus says those with this thirst and hunger will be satisfied Remember, one thing is being filled with this world and another thing is to be filled by God. One is temporary and the other one is forever. Remember, just like Jesus told the Samaritan woman at the well, you will thirst no more. That desire that we have, he's going to fulfill it. I only went through four attitudes, right? Four beatitudes. That's all I did today. But I don't know about you, but it's, it's, it's pretty hard. It's really hard to kind of express how you feel about these attitudes, about that, that promise that he's made to us. I mean, you look at it, it's like, God, you're telling me that if you change my heart, I'm going to 
recognize how poor I am spiritually. But you will make me spiritually rich and allow me into your kingdom. And, and we're looking at the fact that he's not saying you're going to look at my kingdom. You can get hang around my kingdom. He's talking about you get to be in the kingdom. Like in there. We, we look back at those you know, the times where there was kings, right? They have their, their kingdom, but, you know, they got walls. And you have the peasants outside, and only those few are able to get inside. No, he's talking about you are inside the kingdom. I mean, you're telling me, God, that, that it's, it, it, as I mourn my brokenness, you're going to be there to comfort me? And, and, and you're not saying, I'm going to send an angel, a guardian angel or something, to keep you comforted. No, you're saying, you yourself, God, is going to comfort me. Not only will, will, will I be allowed in the kingdom, I would inherit the kingdom over all those who have tried to devour me. I mean, you're telling me that even if I don't deserve it, you're going to quench my thirst and fill my hunger like nothing that this world can ever give us. This is what he's saying in just four blessings. All, all I said was four. And all that is from those four. I mean, that is something to be joyful about. Hope you enjoyed this week's sermon. If you have any questions, would like to connect, or listen to our library sermons, jump right over to our website at www.holycitychurch.us. Again, we want to thank you for listening, and remember, this podcast is not intended to replace your time at the church. So we hope you have a blessed week, and talk to you again next week on Catch Up with Holy City Church. Holy City Church.